This is episode 480 with Dr. Tina Bryson. She is giving us the best conscious, gentle parenting advice you will immediately want to implement, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I'm so excited about this episode because I love this topic so much and I'm always learning and growing, especially when it comes to parenting. I want to be the best mama that I can be, and that means that I need to grow with my children. You don't just become an adult and then stop learning and growing and evolving. Uh Uh-uh. The more you have that mindset of growth and evolution and you grow with your children, the better. So this episode is so good. I'm going to re-listen to it a thousand times. And for those of you that have never heard of Tina, she is the author of The Bottom Line for Baby and co-author with Dr. Dan Siegel, who has also been on this show, of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline essential reading for all parents. Now, these books have been translated into over 50 languages. And she also wrote The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up, which are all essential reading for parents. They are such profound books that will really get you into your heart when it comes to parenting and help you so much on this parenting journey, on this conscious parenting journey. She is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection. She also does keynote talks for big conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. She frequently consults with schools, businesses, and other organizations. And the most important part of her bio, she says, is that she is a mama to three boys. For everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 480. Now let's dive into this beautiful conscious parenting conversation with Tina Payne Bryson. Tina, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? I actually don't eat breakfast. I wait until about noon to eat because I'm trying to do a little bit of an extended fast. But for lunch, my best friend and I and her mom took my mom to lunch for her 70th birthday. And I had a delicious blue cheese wedge salad and half of a cheeseburger. (laughs) <laughs> it was a birthday celebration, so I kind of just went a little went a little crazy. There were some fries in there too, I will admit. <laughs> oh gosh, I love the honesty. It's awesome. <laughs> now, I've had the incredible Dr. Dan Siegel on the podcast. That was episode 384, and everyone loved that episode. I loved chatting with him so much. And I love your books that you co-authored together. Oh, they're so good. So it was only a matter of time before I had you on the show as well. 
You've been on my list for a while. And to be honest, since my husband and I met in 2013 and I instantly became a stepmama, I have been reading conscious parenting books since then. And then in 2021, I gave birth to my daughter and I read your latest two books, The Power of Showing Up and The Bottom Line for Baby. And I loved those books. But let's first talk about The Power of Showing Up, which you wrote with Dan. It's amazing and such essential reading for all parents. Talk about the four S's that you share in the book that are essential for parents to understand. I love this book because I love the research that it's based on so much because it is full of hope and gives us so much grace as parents to not have to be perfect. So the four S's in the book come from basically the punchline of the science, which is this, that over 70 years of cross-cultural research tells us that one of the best predictors for how well our kids turn out on pretty much anything we are looking at is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And let me just be really clear, that's not the same thing as attachment parenting. It's totally different from that. It's actually, what is attachment? What is secure attachment? It's a mammal instinct that drives us to get close to someone who will help us feel connected and protected, particularly when we are in distress or in stress or in pain or when we're having a hard time. And so what the four S's are is with this in mind, if our child having that kind of secure attachment with us is one of the best things we can do for how they turn out and really for how their brains get wired, how can we as parents cultivate it? How can we cultivate it in the everyday moments when our four-year-old won't get out of the bathtub, when our 10-year-old is having a meltdown at bedtime, when our kids are fighting with their siblings, you know, when they're struggling in school, all of these everyday moments, how can we cultivate that? And the four S's allow us to do that. So here's what they are. The first one is safe. And that is just very quickly, the idea that we are the safe harbor for them. So no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what's happening inside of them, that we are always this safe harbor that they can come to. And one of the ways that we often violate this sense of safety is that we become really unpredictable ourselves, like yelling at them or whatever. We kind of violate that by um, making them feel like we cannot protect and connect with them because we can't even be grounded within ourselves. So um, fortunately, there's a lot of hope around how we can repair that. So we can talk about that if you'd like. The second S is seen. And this is about looking at the mind behind the behavior. So this is not just focused on them pouting when they're not getting their way. What we're doing then is looking at what their experience is on the inside. Like, oh, they're feeling disappointed, perhaps. Or it's really about tuning into their felt experience. Really hard to do sometimes. The third S is soothe. And this is really about comforting them, nurturing them, helping them, co-regulating with them when they're falling apart. It's really the idea that when you're at your worst, I'm going to be here and I'm going to help you. And then all of that leads to the fourth S of secure, which is wonderful because the idea is that not perfectly, but when we predictably enough show up for our kids in ways that allow them to feel safe and seen and soothed, they develop this fourth S of secure, which is where their brains have wired to come to know that when they need us, we will show up. When they have a need, we will see it and show up for them. And then what's amazing about that is their brains then wired for them to be able to show up for themselves, to keep themselves safe to see and understand themselves, to soothe themselves, and to show up for other people in their relationships. So it's a really powerful way of thinking about 
how we handle these everyday moments. And I'm happy to give some examples or, or walk. To, if you, you can share some stories with me and I can tell you how I would 4S it. <laughs> Honestly, these four S's, they have become the cornerstone of the way that I parent. So I want to thank you so much and Dan, because it literally gave me a framework on how to parent. So when I put my head on my pillow at night, I ask myself, was I her safe harbor today? And did I make her feel seen? Did she feel soothed? And ultimately, did that lead to her feeling secure? And so it's such an amazing and powerful way to parent. And I have a couple of friends who have those four S's written and stuck up on their fridge. And what they do is they check in with themselves and their partner each day. It's such a great thing to come back to. I love them so much. But before we dive into each of them, we've touched on this a little bit, but can you talk to us about the difference between secure attachment versus attachment parenting? Because there's a lot of confusion out there. Well, the first thing I want to say about that is that attachment science, which is what I'm talking about here, is under the umbrella of developmental psychology. And it's it's done with intense research, like I said, cross-culturally, even looking at these instincts that we have as mammals. So for example, like my dog um, needs to feel connected and protected when she's in distress. When I take her to the vet and she's under stress, she gets as close to me as possible. When I begin to pet her and talk to her and soothe her, her little nervous system calms down and she stops shaking as much. So this is really, you know, a part of who we are as mammals. Attachment parenting is really the purpose of it is to promote bonding and to promote connection with your infant or child. What it is, is it's kind of a list of behaviors to do. So, and a lot of them are hyphenated, co-sleeping, baby-led, feeding, skin-to-skin contact, like all these things that are lovely if they work for you and your baby. But attachment is never about a list of behaviors, it's about a way of being and the ourselves and our presence that we bring. So what I want to say is the hugest difference to me is that if you do none of the things that attachment parenting tell you you have to do to bond with your baby, you can still have a child with beautiful, secure attachment to you. And just because you do the things that attachment parenting tells you to do does not ensure that you will. Because you could do co-sleeping and baby-led schedules and all of these things, But if you're doing it without really being tuned into the mind of your child and responding to their needs in a way that's really about emotion and presence, your child will not have secure attachment with you. So it's never about a checklist of behaviors. It's a way of being in relationship. Mm, Absolutely. And you mentioned something before that's so important, and that is co-regulating our own nervous system. And I talk about this so much because the mama is the heartbeat of the home. Our energy dictates the entire energy of every single human that comes into our home and that lives under our roof. So it is imperative that we are taking care of ourselves and that we are filling ourselves up and that we are taking responsibility for our own nervous system and that we are embodying the things that we want to impart on our children that we are embodying them first and that we are regulating ourselves. This is so important. You can't show up as the best mama or papa. You just can't show up as the best version of you if you are depleted, if you are exhausted, if you aren't regulated. So it's really important. It's such a big piece and we need to let go of the mama guilt 
for taking care of ourselves. And, you know, I'd actually love to hear your perspective on mama guilt. You've said so many important things there that I would love to respond to. The big one is absolutely that's true. We, our children mirror our nervous systems. They mirror our states. And you know what? That's a lot of freaking pressure, right? It's like now I'm responsible for my child's mood and their behavior and everything. And for my partner and for, you know, now the mailman, you're saying anyone who comes into my house, like it's a lot. But I will say that to me, it is such a profound responsibility and honor that does not mean I have to be perfect. It doesn't mean I can't struggle with feeling depleted and defeated and all of these things from time to time. But you said something really important there, and that's that we're responsible for that. Now, this is crucial. There's a ton of science without getting too much in the weeds that show that we really do, our nervous systems really do respond to other people's nervous systems. So we do set the tone in our homes. And we can certainly talk about some ways to do that because then we all know this. We all know that we need to do self-care. We all know that we are, that our children mirror our states. It's really hard to do. And then when we know we're not doing it well, most of us don't do a pretty, a very good job about that. And then we feel bad, which then makes our, our states even less stable, et cetera. Here's what I want to offer. First of all, we can talk about some science-based things that are different from what most people talk about when it comes to regulating our own nervous systems. We can talk about that. But once we have learned some strategies to do that, I want to really enforce here that one of the biggest ways, and I, I alluded to this earlier, that we violate our child's sense of safety is by becoming unpredictable ourselves. We become unpredictable when we are responding to our child in a moment from our own internal chaos and distress and emotions and nervous system distress, as opposed to what's actually happening with our child. And the way this looks is, to our child, we're predictable, we're patient, we're predictable, we're patient until we're not, right? So like I'm playing the game Yahtzee with my boys, we're playing, we're having a good time, they begin to fight with each other, things begin to escalate, I start getting more and more impatient until I lose my mind and I yell at them and I throw the dice across the room like a crazy person. And what's happened then is their little mammalian brains are like, well, if a predator came right now, she couldn't protect me because she's not even in control of herself. So it violates their felt sense of safety. And obviously, then if I'm screaming at them or I'm threatening them, or especially if we're in, in cases where parents are physically violent, we're obviously violating their sense of safety in another way as well. But in this moment, what's really crucial and what the research says that's so ho- hopeful is that when we mess up, when we become unpredictable, because unpredictability signals a potential threat. So that's why unpredictability activates our fight-flight-freeze circuitry at times, which is one of the reasons why the pandemic has made everyone so much in distress is so much unpredictability. It makes our nervous systems really frazzled. After I have that moment of I've lost it, I've yelled at my kid, I've, you know, I'm like, fine, do what you want to do or, you know, whatever I do in that moment. The key is to make sure I'm regulated again and then to reconnect. And the way I can do that is by saying, oh, I got really mad and I didn't handle that very well. I really wish I had handled that differently. Will you forgive me? I might even ask for a do-over. Now, notice there, I'm not saying if you guys had stopped fighting like I told you to, that wouldn't have happened. I want to teach my boys that they are responsible for their own behavior no matter what anybody else does. So I can't have my apology and my reconnection be blaming them. I have to take responsibility for my behavior. Now, here's the part I want to really dig in on. Well, two things. When I make that repair, 
the research tells us that as long as we make that repair, as long as we're not doing too much harm, we're not being abusive. So I'm talking about kind of everyday moments where we just are yelling and we're impatient, stuff like that. My kids are actually building relational resilience because they've sat in this moment of, wow, this feels not very good right now. There's some messiness and some chaos and some conflict in this relationship. But I know, my brain knows based on previous experiences that keep happening that she's going to come make it right with me in a minute. And I can tolerate this moment right now because I know it's going to be okay in a few. So it actually builds resilience. So that feels really good. The second thing that I think is crucial, and, and you, you talked about this, Melissa, a minute ago, when we have a moment like that and we're putting our head on the pillow at the end of the night, if we are swimming in guilt and we're beating ourselves up, do you know what that does? It actually makes it more likely we will flip our lids and do more bad behavior the next day. Because guilt actually has a physiological response that tightens up our stomach muscles, tightens our jaw muscles. We have, there's a physiological response to every emotion we have. When we feel shame and, and guilt, it actually makes us more stressed, which then makes us less likely to be patient and be able to tune into our child's experiences the next day. Here's what I recommend instead of letting ourselves go down that path. You might find yourself meandering down the guilt shame path. Then I want you to pause and become curious and say to yourself, what got in the way of me being the parent I wanted to be in that moment? And you might find that your answer is like, I haven't peed by myself in three years and I'm exhausted and I haven't had any fun with my friends in forever and I feel kind of lonely and isolated or, you know, something like that. Then when you get to that place where you're like, okay, I have a need that is not being met. Now you know what to do. Now you know what specific need to give some attention to next, as opposed to just this global, like, I need better self-care. Like, be curious. What is it that got in the way? And sometimes it's something just part of everyday parent life, right, that can be fixed. Like, I need a good night's sleep, and I need my partner to step up, or I need to have uh, someone come and take care of my kids for a couple of hours so I can nap. Other times, it's something bigger like, gosh, I noticed that when. Um, when I'll give, I'm just making something up here. My, when my kids fight with each other, it's really triggering for me. I wonder what that's about. Besides just that it's annoying. Hmm. Maybe it's because I grew up in a family where when there was any kind of conflict, it meant there was potential danger. And so my nervous system gets jacked up really fast when there's any kind of conflict, even if it's between my children. And so that's a trigger for me that I need to pay attention to. And maybe the next time it happens, I can do a little bit of self-talk, like hmm, okay, this conflict, I can be safe right now in this conflict because I'm the one in charge here or something like that, where we do some making sense of these triggers. Because that's the other thing is that the number one predictor for how well we are able to provide secure attachment to our children is, thank goodness, not whether or not we had it with our own parents because about 25 to 35% of the population had a more insecure pattern of attachment where your parent didn't show up for you in some way. The number one predictor is that we've reflected on those experiences and made sense of them. Like, I didn't feel safe with my parents, or I never felt seen. They never understood who I was. They, I felt like they only loved me for who they wanted me to be. Or when I was upset, they never comforted me. I was on my own, or I had to take care of them, or whatever it is. Those types of insecure patterns of attachment are not our destiny. History is not 
destiny. As long as we reflect on and make sense of the kinds of experiences we had and the needs that weren't met for us, we can provide this to our children. So back to circle back to where we were a minute ago, that means that when we have these ruptures for our kids, it's a really great time to tune into and become curious about what got in the way for us and let it let it go after that. It's really important that we do that self-inquiry work and that we sit and we reflect and we go inward. But so many people are filling their lives with just so much stuff that they don't even have a second to stop and take a breath and reflect. So I want to encourage everyone to take that time in the evening and to reflect and to repair if it needs to happen. It's really important that we do that. And that we do this self-inquiry work, that we go within and we ask ourselves, well, why did I react like that? What was it for me? What did it trigger within me? It's so important. And I just want to say to everyone, and this is something that I have done, and I'm constantly working on deleting the word perfect from my vocabulary. Like the perfect parent, just delete that word, the perfect mama, the perfect parent, just delete it. And being the perfect parent is not what we are talking about. We're not talking about being the perfect parent. There is no such thing. This is just about showing up for our kids and for ourselves and for our partner and doing the work to repair if that needs to happen and showing up with the four S's so that our kids feel safe. Because like you said, when they feel safe and seen and soothed, They're going to feel secure. They're going to be well-attached, well-adapted human beings. And they're going to go out into the world with confidence and feeling grounded and secure within themselves. And that's ultimately what we want for our little ones. So everyone listening to this episode obviously wants to be the best parent they can be. You wouldn't be listening to this episode if you didn't. So what are some other things that we need to remember? Let me start with a story about an everyday parenting moment and in terms of where we start. The first thing is, you know, I just said a minute ago, history is not destiny. And I mean that in terms of the kind of parenting we had and what kind of parent we want to be. But I also mean it in the micro moments. Like if you parented in a way that you don't feel great about an hour ago or the whole day today or the last week or the last month or the last year, it is never too late to make a change. So what I want to say is that these four S's are my North Star. There are a million moments as a parent where I don't know where to start. I don't know the right thing to do or say, or I'm not sure the way I'm thinking about going about it is the right way. This is why the four S's are everything to me, because if I can respond in a way in the moment that helps my child feel safe and seen and soothed and secure and knowing I'm going to keep showing up over and over and over again then it is the right thing to do. It builds their brain. It builds relationship. It builds resilience. It's exactly what we want to do. And by the way, these are needs throughout our whole lifespan. So your co-parent, whether you're married to them or not, probably also need, we all need the four S's. I need people, like if I'm going to show up and give my kid the four S's, I better be showing up for myself and I better be having other people who make, who give me the four S's too. So that's really key. Okay. So let's tell this, this moment. So I've got three boys And so this is a story about a time when the two older brothers, the boys are all three years apart from each other. So the two older brothers were... Can you tell us their ages? Yeah. So now, now they are 22, 19, and 16. So they are old, old grownups almost. Two of them are in college, and I've got one still at home in high school. So this story took place when they were probably like 
9, 12, and 15 or something. I am not, probably my children would not describe me as a militant, strict parent. I have very high expectations and very firm boundaries, and that absolutely can go with all of this warm fuzziness that we talked about and actually should. In fact, we can talk definitely about discipline and how that goes together. But um, one thing I was very, very strict and militant about was sleep. And I am a firm believer that chronic sleep deprivation is one of the huge contributors to the mental health crisis we have among our young people in our world. So I was very strict about sleep. So my nine-year-old, it's time for bed. And the two older brothers who are teenagers practically and actually have friends over. It's a Friday night. And so they're getting to stay up later. So JP, my little guy, says, you know, I want to stay up with the the older you know, with the older kids and his 12-year-old brother was always so sweet about including him and most of the time. So he wants to stay up. So I give, I'm like, okay, I'll give you 15 more minutes. Well, all that meant, Melissa, was that he was 15 minutes more tired before we had the total battle, right? So it's time for bed. He's got his pajamas on. He's brushed his teeth. I've pulled together this stack of books and I've climbed into the bed for our like snuggle reading time, which is so lovely. And I'm really appreciating it with my third one because I know I don't have that very many years with this left. And so we're in the bed and he is practically foaming at the mouth and flopping on the bed like a fish out of water because he's so angry that he has to go to bed. So how do I do this for S's thing? Like, where do I start? What does this look like in motion? Well, what I want to do, what's going on in my head is to, to throw out a threat. Like, if you're going to act like that, like, I already gave you 15 more minutes. So next time you're not even getting extra time. So I start, I, you know, easily could go into lecturing. I easily could go into, if you're going to act like that, you're not getting any books tonight. So I could go to the threat you know, kind of thing, which ends up totally always being a lose-lose because then he's more upset. It's going to take longer for him to go to sleep anyway. Like, you know, it's so, and as you know, I make mistakes. I've already admitted to a big one um, a minute ago. But in this moment, I want to tell you what it looks like to do it well. So here's the four S's in action. So the first thing I want to do is help him feel safe by knowing he can share his emotions with me and for me to be the calm in the storm. If we think about ourselves as the safe harbor, that means we can't be the storm out in the sea, right? Like, so if I am like get mad at him and I start yelling and I add to his distress, instead of soothing his distress, I'm amplifying his distress. And that's kind of the opposite of what I want to do. So how do I do that? I'm, I'm starting to get mad. Like I'm annoyed. I'm tired. So the first thing I do is actually a really helpful strategy. If you, you all who are listening can try this, just put a hand on your heart and a hand on your belly and just sort of take a breath. And just notice how that feels. It's really kind of just within a second or two, really grounding. So I put a hand on my chest and my belly. I take a deep breath. And we know too that if your exhale is longer than your inhale, like a sigh, it actually down regulates your nervous system. So I take a big long breath with a long exhale, grounding myself first. This takes a couple of seconds. And I literally say to myself, at his worst is when he needs you the most. So this is where I begin with start, with safe, is I want him to feel safe, which means I have to be able to be in the moment and, and keep myself regulated. So then I want to go to scene, which is to help him feel like what he is experiencing right now, anger and disappointment and feeling like he's missing out. And my response are a match. So he understands that I understand. He feels felt. That's one of Dan Siegel's great phrases. He feels felt. 
Now, what this means, Melissa, is that I can't do what I want to do, which is criticize. Like, why are you making such a big deal about it, about this? You know, your your brothers wouldn't throw a fit like this or minimize. Like, why are you crying so hard? Like, this is so not like, so I want to minimize and criticize. Those are the opposite of scene. So I want to help him feel seen. So here's what this looks like. So I take a breath. I tell myself, this is when he needs you the most. You are the safe haven. I talk to myself, safe harbor. Then I practice scene and I say to him, you're really mad you have to go to bed. You are feeling like you might be missing out. And that's so disappointing. Is that right? So I'm really trying to respond in a way that is like, I get you, buddy. I I feel what you're feeling. I understand you. I know you. I get you. And he's like, yes. And he just, you know, he gets a bigger emotion and flops more, right? So then parents are probably like, oh, no, this is getting worse. But no, this is just, this is the beginning of of the co-regulation, right? I'm validating his experience. Then I moved to soothed. And I used to spend so much time in moments like this, like, how do I, like, I just spend so much time and energy and emotion and cognitive energy trying to figure out what do I do? What do I say? How do I fix this? How do I stop this? It is so simple when we go with the four S's because I just literally keep myself calm, help him feel felt and understand, say something that I think he's feeling. And then the soothing is literally mostly about my calm presence. So I say to him, if I understand that's really hard, it's okay to feel disappointed and angry. And while you're feeling that, I'm right here with you. Full stop. I pause. I let him feel it. He flops on the bed a little bit. I'm like, I know, buddy. It's so hard. I'm right here with you. I give it a couple of minutes. And then I say, when you're ready for me to read, just let me know. And usually the way this works is he'll be like, fine, go ahead and read. Now, again, I could amplify the distress and cause a big thing by saying, now, if you don't speak to me respectfully, you're not getting, I could start that whole thing. But he knows how to speak respectfully to me when he's regulated. As his brain develops, he'll get better on that. I can address that behavior later if I need to. And I begin to read, He his whole nervous system, it's like the dial gets turned down on the reactivity. Now, something really important happened there. Number one, it freaking works, okay? So within just a couple of minutes, he is regulated again. He is calm. My goal of getting him to bed is gonna happen a lot faster. Like, it works. It is. Inc- it feels good as a parent to be able to do that for your child, and it's effective. But something else is happening. He had an experience of... Boy, at my worst, she still shows up for me. She can handle my big emotions. I don't have to protect her from my feelings because if I criticize him, I'm like, you're such a baby. Why are you acting like this? The brain is an association machine. So if I do that, he's like, gosh, when I shared how I felt with her, which typically with little kids especially is not, hey, I'm really wanting to let you know I'm feeling disappointed. It comes out as in behavior, right? So he shares his behavior with me. If I respond in a way that's critical or minimizing, his his brain's like, that didn't feel very good. Maybe I won't do that again. Maybe I won't share how I really feel. Maybe it's not totally safe to share how I feel. So I've, sh- I've also communicated to him with that, I'm right here with you comment and just pausing that I can handle his big feelings. And then something even more important happens. I've also communicated to him I trust that you can handle your big feelings. You can handle feeling disappointed. You can handle being angry. You've got this. And so what it is, is, you know, the thing that makes the difference between adversity making us fragile and adversity making us resilient is someone showing up for us. So in that moment, I show up for him and I'm just like, buddy, I'm here. You can feel it. I'm here with you. I've got you. Do you, and sometimes I might even say, is there something I can do to help or 
what do you need right now? But I really try to keep the words at a minimum because I tend to overtalk in these moments with my kids anyway. But that's really what it looks like. So then when I do that over and over as best I can, he knows that when he is falling apart, he can count on me to get him back to baseline. And the brain is also like a, like, you know, when we lift weights, we do reps, it builds our muscles. It's the same thing. When I co-regulate with him and I help soothe him and bring him back to baseline with my calm presence and my validation, you know, the four S's here, he learns how to self-soothe and how to get himself back to baseline. So this is not indulgent. I'm still holding boundaries. I'm not saying, okay, fine, you can stay up. I'm still holding firm boundaries. So I'm saying no to a behavior, even while I'm saying yes to his experience around that boundary. And I guess the last thing I'll say about this is that if in the moment I'm patient, 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 and then I start yelling and I get mad, I'm like, fine, you go to bed by yourself. And tomorrow night, you're going to bed even earlier. Let's say I blow up. The way this can also look is that I go back to him and I say, oh, buddy, I really wish I had handled that differently. I got mad and I didn't calm down my body and I didn't make a good choice in how I handled that before I did it. And so can we start over? And so repair, even when we kind of go off path, is also part of the forest. That's what also what it can look like. Oh, I love this so much. And thank you for sharing that story because I know so many parents listening can totally relate to that situation. And it's just so beautiful to see that there's another way to handle the situations. And that's really inspiring. There's another way. And it all comes back to us taking a breath before we respond and being the adult in that situation and being the rock, being their safe harbor. But you've said so many things here that I want to touch on. I've got notes next to me of all of the things that I want to talk to you about. But one of the first things I want to talk to you about is sleep. Talk to me about sleep. I absolutely agree with you that sleep is imperative. It's so important. I have interviewed almost 500 of the world's best experts and doctors and scientists on my podcast, and there's a common thread between all of them, and they all pretty much, every single one of them have mentioned sleep at some point. And from my own personal experience, I didn't value sleep for the majority of my life. It wasn't until I was 24 when I hit rock bottom and I ended up in hospital that I then changed my entire life. And it wasn't until I went and studied holistic nutrition that I understood the power of sleep for your physical and your mental health. But before that, I was a party girl and I had that mentality of, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I was also on sleeping tablets when I was 16 and 17. Because I was a professional dancer and I was dancing late and then I would come home and I wouldn't be able to sleep. So I would take sleeping tablets. This is not recommended at all. But I had a really unhealthy relationship with sleep. But I now know and I've read the data on how important it is. So I love that this is a boundary for you and your family. And it is for us with our daughter too. It's a very, very firm, loving boundary. And I also have a 16 year old bonus son who's not with us all the time. He's only here with us sometime in the school holidays and a few times during the school term. But when he's here, he goes to bed when we go to bed. And I'm sure a lot of his friends would probably laugh at the time that he goes to bed when he's here. But it is such a priority for us because we know how important it is. And from day one with my daughter, we have been very diligent with her sleep and she's a dream sleeper. She's literally a dream. 
The sleep stuff's really interesting. So as I mentioned, I have teenagers and I was taking home five or six boys the other night from a back to school kind of gathering that was happening. And one of the boys who knows what I do, um, he's one of my son's good friends, and he often is asking me questions about the brain and the nervous system and behavior and stuff like that. He it, he knows that my son is a really good sleeper and sleeps, goes to bed earlier than most of the other kids. And with all the academic pressures, you know, it's hard. Kids are up, you know, studying and what, goofing around on screens and stuff. He was asking me for advice. He's like, I'm having a hard time falling asleep and staying asleep. And so like, I love that, like kids, I think are starting to come to know how important it is. It's crucial. I mean, obviously, you know, all the data around like when we sleep, that's the only time a lot of the toxins in our brains can get cleaned out. Like there's physiological things related to that. But if you think about how we are in lots of ways, kind of a a nervous system that walks around in a world with lots of things that come at us from the external world and a lot that happens in our own inner life inside of us. And sleep is a time for your nervous system to reset. And so if you're not getting enough of that, you really can stay in really heightened states of nervous system arousal all the time. I think when it comes to kids, and this is true, whether we're talking about like making your kids sit at the table with good table manners and eat, or we're talking about like sleep routines and going to sleep. One of the biggest mistakes I would say that parents make with particularly young kids is that they don't understand that the brain is an association machine and that it's our repeated experiences that really set our wiring for whether something is positive and something we want more of or feel pleasant about and are willing to embrace and walk toward, or whether something is a negative experience that we then actively avoid. So what I mean by that is if bedtimes are full of conflict and parental reactivity or substitute the word mealtimes, kids are going to be like, I don't like that time because mom yells a lot and it's really stressful. So I'm going to do everything I can to avoid bedtime. Whereas if the experience is kind of delicious to their nervous system, right? It's like cozy and snuggly and it feels safe, then they don't fight against it as much. Now, obviously, temperament plays in. Kids don't want to miss out on something else that's going on and all that. But we are laying down the patterns for our children early in terms of whether sleep is a safe, positive experience or whether it is a conflict, stress avoiding kind of experience. Parents get really stuck in rigid behavioral ways of thinking about sleep training, not just in infancy, but even in toddlerhood and preschool. Like, let me give a really specific example. It's really common for kids who are around ages four to six to have another wave of separation anxiety that can be really intense. So maybe your three-year-old four-year-old is perfectly fine going to the bathroom in your home by themselves without any problem. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they're, they won't go to the bathroom by themselves or they won't go you know, to their room by themselves or they won't fall asleep on their own anymore. This is not oppositionality. This is actually the reason they have this is happening is because there's a new wave of separation anxiety that comes after a child has a cognitive development burst. So now all of a sudden, say this five-year-old has had this cognitive development that allows them to imagine scarier things that can happen. And with as they move closer to age six, they start to be having the ability to even imagine something horrible, even tragic happening to their parents, right? So they now have all these 
cognitive abilities and these greater imaginations for scarier things, but they don't have the emotional maturity yet to handle those things or know how to deal with those imaginary situations and those feelings. So they become more clingy and more dependent on us and have separation anxiety because we are their best tools for them to feel safe and regulated. What this means, though, is if you have a five-year-old who is really having a hard time falling asleep at night and they do much better with falling asleep with you in the room with them as they fall asleep, go ahead and do that if it works for you. If your child has an experience of feeling safe as they fall asleep as their brain development is unfolding, go for it. People tell you like, oh, you're going to make them dependent on you and they'll never be able to fall asleep. We've got to stop doing fear-based parenting where we're like, oh, if I let them sleep in the bed with me or if I don't do this or if I do do this, it's going to mean they're ruined forever. That is fear-based parenting. We have to trust development to unfold. My job when I'm trying to decide how much do I want to expect my child to have autonomy here versus how much do I want to... In in our book, The Yes Brain, we talk about the idea of pushing and cushion. How much do we need to kind of do some pushing for our child to be taking steps toward independence or handling something on their own versus do we need to give them some cushion and some soothing and some, you know, some scaffolding and support here? The way that we can determine that is it's okay for our kids to feel a little bit of stress and it's okay for them to feel a little bit of outside their comfort zone discomfort. But if it's too much, if it's too much stress or it's too far outside of their comfort zone, pushing them toward that prematurely before they're ready is counterproductive because it makes them feel more afraid. Stephen Porges is a, um, a guy who created something called polyvagal theory, and he has this beautiful term called neuroception. And it's a type of perception that our nervous system has that's always trying to determine whether something is safe or whether something is a threat or dangerous. So when we push our kids so far that they're, maybe their neuroception for danger goes off, it's going to be counterproductive if we push. So your child will need different things at different stages of their life. And just because they can do something sometimes doesn't mean they could do it all the time. And just because they can do something doesn't mean they're going to be able to do it next week. There are, development is not linear that way. So I would say when it comes to sleep, always be thinking about what wiring or associations am I laying down? And let safety and connection guide you. Your child will move to autonomy around this and everything else when they are ready. And the science is really clear about that, that when children feel safe, they will move to autonomy and independence when they're ready. We can't spoil them when it comes to too much attention, affection, soothing, love, holding them. Where we can get in trouble is if we don't have boundaries, enforced boundaries. We don't have expectations and so, so and so. So I think parents are often given a lot of pressure internally and externally about coddling their children too much, you really don't have to worry about that. Help your child feel safe. That will help them actually become more resilient and allow them to move to independence when they're ready. Mm, I love it. And something that we have done with our daughter since she was born is we have had positive associations with sleep. So, And we actually learned this from Dr. Golly, who has been on my podcast. He is amazing. And he talks about the happy wake-ups. So every time we would greet her, we would do a very happy wake-up like, hi, darling, good morning. You're such a great sleeper. Ah, you must feel so amazing. Oh my goodness. So it was always really positive, really upbeat. And she would feel our energy, our upbeat and our happy and our positive energy. And I'm so glad I learned that from Dr. Golly because it's really important that we have 
a very healthy relationship with sleep. It sets us up for life. You know, it's very, very important, especially kids. And they go into those teenage years where they don't sleep as much. But if they've got that foundation, they will most likely have a positive association with sleep and make it a priority. And, you know, my mother still doesn't sleep very well. And my brother is the same. And he doesn't sleep very well because he watched her and he didn't see, you know, another example. He sleeps maybe four or five hours a night and I truly don't know how he functions at all. So everyone listening, it's important to clean up your sleep and take it seriously for you and your kids and make it a priority. You will function so much better when you do. Your brain is actually more integrated when you have, you know, you're able to use your brain in a in a different way. And I would say for those of you who have older kids, you know, I've been doing this since my kids were little, but also um, Christine Carter wrote a beautiful book called The New Adolescence, where she used this as a specific example. She has a whole chapter about sleep in adolescence. But the idea is, you know, at some point our children leave us. And so over time, we want to give them opportunities to flex their own autonomy while we still have eyes on them and we can support them in making good decisions. So one of the ways that we can start doing this with our kids, even in their elementary years, but for sure into their adolescent years, is to say, I know you know it's so important to get a good night's sleep and I'm noticing what time it is. I see that you're working on your homework or I see that you're talking to your friends or whatever. What is your plan for getting a good night's sleep? And that phrase, what is your plan? I've used that a million times in my parenting journey. Um, instead of just telling them, go to bed. It's eight, it's eight o'clock, go to bed. To say, hmm, I'm noticing it's 7.30. I know you know it's important to get a good night's sleep and I know you know our bedtime boundaries and, and rules and rhythms. What is your plan for making that happen? What needs to happen between now and then? And you're actually giving them opportunities to have reps and flexing their their brain muscles to do some executive function planning and to be thinking about what are the steps that need to happen between now and then and to get a felt sense of time. Okay, I have 30 minutes, you know. So I think um, asking our kids, what is your plan as it relates to sleep and other things can be a really helpful phrase as well. I love that. I will definitely be using that with my teenager. That's just awesome. Talk to me about healthy boundaries and discipline. How does this play into the conscious parenting conversation? You know, it's really interesting. I think in the gentle conscious parenting world, I think there's still a little bit of a misconception around this piece because I think as a society, globally, we have this belief that either you are kind of like a strict command and demand kind of parent or you're warm and fuzzy and respectful and gentle and conscious, and that those are two ends of one spectrum. But over 75 or 80 years of research, it's the most heavily researched construct in parenting is this idea of authoritative parenting, which is where we have high structure and boundaries and expectations that we clearly communicate to our children. And we are really high in warmth and connection and co-regulation and all those relational things, the four S's. The reason that this is so effective is based on, you know, Dan and I wrote this whole book called No Drama Discipline. And the point of that book was actually to totally change the entire world's culture around how we think about discipline. Because when people use the word discipline, they typically mean punishment. The meaning of the word discipline is actually to teach 
or to build skills. So everything we do in the name of discipline should be with teaching in mind. So let's start with what is the point and purpose of discipline? Most parents can't answer that question. And then when I ask a follow-up question, what is your philosophy or approach to, to discipline? Typically, they start trying to talk, but ultimately what they're saying is we don't have one. We're just doing fly by the seat of our pants kind of discipline. Here's the thing. The point and purpose of discipline should be for your child to become self-disciplined, which means that if you are an effective disciplinarian teacher and skill builder, you will be disciplining less and less and less over time because your child is taking care of it. They're making the right decisions. They're handling themselves well. They're navigating situations and themselves at controlling their impulses, making things right when they've made mistakes, like all of those things they start doing on their own. The way we get kids there is through lots and lots of teaching and skill building. Now, the brain is either in a reactive state where it cannot learn, or it's in a receptive state in which it can learn. So much of what we do in the name of discipline, in the moment where our, our kid is acting out, or we're feeling really reactive, or both, is often the worst time to teach. Because when our children are upset, they're tantruming, or they're being really disrespectful to us, or they're lashing out, or they're, you know, just really emotionally reactive or shut down, they actually cannot learn what we're trying to teach. So a couple of things. One is, first of all, we need to ask, like, what is it? Is my child ready to learn in this moment? If the answer is no, wait. Even a two-year-old after a nap and a snack, we can have the conversation with them and say, let's tell the story of when you threw your shoe at mommy's face earlier. Like, we don't have to do it in the moment. If they're not ready to learn, wait. The other part of that is if you are not ready to teach, wait. So if you are not regulated, it's the worst time to teach as well because you're not being intentional. And so I want to also give parents permission to not have to do it in the moment. Sometimes the worst time to discipline is in the moment because of your child's state, because of your state. Remember, the whole point is to teach and build skills. And the research is really clear. It doesn't have to happen in that moment. If you are talking about a dog, yes, but not even, not humans and definitely not even two-year-olds. You can wait. That permission, and I sometimes I'll say to my kids, like, I want to think about how I want to respond to this. So I'm not ready to talk to you about this yet. That's perfectly fine. Give yourself permission for that pause. So I think just that's a, a very generalized thing. But what I would say is what makes kids most receptive to learning is where we are connected and we are we help them. So if I want them to learn, they have to be in this receptive state. Sometimes the quickest way to get them there is through co-regulation and soothing and using the four S's first before they can get there. I would love to tell you a quick discipline story. Can I tell you another JP story? Yeah, go for it. Um, he's my youngest, so he's like the most fresh. And he, he, I have his permission to tell these stories. So I'm in the bathroom getting ready in the morning and um, Luke, my eight-year-old, comes running in the bathroom and he's like, JP five-starred me. And I didn't know what that meant, but apparently you can slap someone so hard that it leaves the, the five, it leaves like a handprint on there and the fingers almost look like the five points of a star. So that's what that means. I learn all kinds of new vocabulary from my children. They actually learn a little bit from me, sometimes not things I necessarily want them to repeat. Um, 
So he's eight, JP's five. And so I lift up his shirt and I see JP's little juicy handprint right on his back. And so I comfort Luke. I'm so sorry. That looks like it hurts. Do you want to put a cool rag on it? So I comfort him. And then he's like, no, just deal with that beast. I'm fine. And so he leaves and goes off on his own, which is great because it's so much better when there's sibling conflict, if it's, if you can to deal with just one, one-on-one, because otherwise the other, you know, the other one's like, why aren't you, you know, no, you you know, they get into it. So, so now is the discipline moment, right? My kid has hit his brother. Hitting is against the rules. Everyone needs to feel safe in our house. So no one, no one should be hitting anybody. So now is the discipline moment. What I want to do, what my first instinct is, is to be like, why in the world did you hit your brother? Which is not really a question. It's more of a lecture, even though it sounds like a question. And to kind of be mad and to get reactive myself or to throw out a consequence. The first thing that comes to my mind, like go to your room and I'm canceling your play date. And then my brain tries to come up with a reason to justify that and to say, you clearly can't be with people today. You're too, you know, you're not handling yourself well or whatever. So throw out a consequence. But neither of those things are going to probably teach him anything. What I want to do in the moment, every discipline moment, I can. I want to respond in a way that makes it more likely that my child can be more self-disciplined the next time, that my child has a better strategy to use the next time, that my child can handle themselves better the next time. Most of the things we do in the name of discipline, sending them to their room, throwing out a consequence, taking something away, putting them in timeout, spanking, like all these things that typically are yelling at them or forcing an apology. These things don't do anything typically to make it so that they will do better the next time. So let's say your kid does something. You're like, I'm taking away your dessert tonight. No dessert tonight. Your kid is not eating dessert, thinking about, or not sitting there, not getting dessert, thinking about how they should do things differently. And then the next day, when we're talking about a five-year-old, they start to hurt their sibling again. They're not going to be like, oh, wait, I didn't like not getting dessert, so I'm not going to do that. That's not how it works, right? So a lot of those things don't do anything. So how do I handle it? So I go around the corner, JP's standing there. He's so mad. He's red in the face. He's fuming. He's like, oh, he's so mad. So I'm going to do the four S's first. And I say, oh, sweetie, you look so mad. What happened? Come here. Because one thing that's important to know is that the part of the brain that lights up when our children are in physical pain is the same part of the brain that lights up when they are in emotional distress. When our children are in physical pain, we're really good at nurturing and comforting and saying, oh, sweetie, what happened? Come here. And we comfort them. That's what they need when they're in emotional distress as well. Now, yes, I'm going to deal with the behavior. I'm not going to allow this behavior to continue unaddressed. But first, I'm going to regulate his nervous system to make him more receptive to learning the what I want him to learn. So I pull him to me and I'm like, oh, you're so angry. So there I'm practicing the, I'm, I'm practicing safe by staying calm and predictable myself, practicing seeing by naming what I think is, he's feeling. And he starts telling me about this thing that Luke did to him. Of course, you know, of course, Luke was also at fault in this, in this kind of situation here in terms of elevating the chaos. So he tells me what Luke did. And I said, yeah, I understand why that made you mad. That would have made me really mad too. Of course that hurts your feelings. As I do that, he starts to calm down. I can feel his little body release some of the tension. I'm holding him. <sighs> I'm taking a breath. Yeah, that made you really mad, didn't it? I get it, honey. So I'm giving it a minute. I'm letting his little nervous system calm down. And then I say to him, sweetie, I know you know it's okay to be mad, but it's not okay to hit somebody. That's just not okay. It hurts. And we want everyone to feel safe. So I address the behavior there. 
then I want to give him opportunities to do it differently in the future. So I say, what could you do next time when you're that angry, but not hurt somebody? So then we talked about some different ways he could move his body and he could come ask for help, right? And then I said to him, I want you to know that you really hurt Luke. And I had actually taken a picture of the handprint, not for JP's sake, but because Luke couldn't see it on his own back and wanted to see what it looked like. And I showed him the picture on my phone. And when I did that, his head dropped. And that was actually the most powerful discipline moment right there. Because that feeling of healthy guilt, which is really, we don't want toxic shame where he feels like he's a bad person. But that healthy guilt, which is really our conscience telling us, "Mm, I violated the mores of my tribe here, which is there on purpose because back in the old days, if we continued to violate the rules of our group, we would get kicked out, which made it much more likely we'd be eaten by the lion, right? So that healthy sense of guilt and conscience is a huge part of changing our behavior. So had I sent him to his room, had I thrown out consequences, The whole time his attention would have been on my mom's so mean for putting me in my room and it was Luke's fault the whole time. And he would have taken zero responsibility for his behavior and he wouldn't have had any other ways of changing his behavior in the future besides just waiting for development to unfold, which is probably enough anyway. But in that moment, when I was able to say, you really hurt your brother. Now, if he's still mad and reactive before I regulate him, he would have been like, good, I wish I had hit him more. Because we can't feel empathy when we're in that reactive state. So again, me soothing him and connecting with him and kind of turning down the dial of reactivity on his whole nervous system through connection, through empathy, through these four S's, makes him set up to be able to feel that feeling of empathy, like, ooh, I shouldn't have hurt my brother like that. And I say to him, I say, "Mm, it looks like you're feeling bad that you hurt Luke. So I'm also now bringing attention to that feeling. And I said, that feeling inside your body right now and what you're feeling is such an amazing superpower you have. That feeling you have right now is so important because it will tell you what's right and what's wrong. And you listen to that feeling. And right now you have a feeling like, oh, that feels kind of bad because you know you did something that was not kind and that hurt somebody else. But the good thing is you can go make it right. So now I don't want him to stay stuck in that guilt, right? That's not good. I want him to notice that feeling, say, oh, that's my conscience. And now I can go make, so I say, what can you do to make things right with Luke? Well, I can go tell him, I'm sorry. That sounds great. Would you like me to go with you? So at the end of this conversation, did I teach? Yes. Did I build skills? Yes. Um, Did I allow him to bring his attention to his own internal world and how it impacted others and go and make things right? Yes. So that was an effective discipline moment because I've made it more likely he will become self-disciplined in the future. I love that so much. And you didn't jeopardize your relationship in the process. Exactly. It's hard to do. We're, we, you know, and I will say too, like your kids are going to have discipline moments a million times a day where you, you don't have to address every single thing. I mean, if, if your significant other addressed every single thing that you did or said that bugged them, it would be too much. You know, they're going to give you plenty of opportunities. It's okay to let some things go right before bedtime or when you're going to not handle it well. It's okay to let some things go. And there's no one right way. You know, if your kid is yelling at you really disrespectfully, like, I hate you, you're so stupid. There's lots of ways to handle that well. One way you can handle it is to say, I know my kid knows not to talk to me like this, and this is just a product of dysregulation. So I'm going to soothe them and get them back and be like, oh, sweetie, you seem really angry. How can I help? What do you need? And then when they're calm again, you can address the behavior. And usually kids, when they get back to regulated states, are like, sorry, I yelled at you. Or like they usually get there on their own because that's not who they are. 
Or you can set a boundary and say, I can see that you're really angry right now, but I don't let anybody talk to me like that. And so let's take a break or I'll sit here with you, but we, we're not going to talk. We're not going to have that conversation if you're going to use that tone and those words with me. Do you want me to stay with you while you take some breaths to calm down? Or do you want me to come back and check on you in a few minutes and then we'll try again? So it's totally fine to set a boundary there too. The worst thing we can do is be like, don't talk to me like, not the worst thing, but not such a great helpful thing is to say, don't talk to me like that. You can't talk to me like that because you're actually just modeling more of that disrespectful communication. And it's actually kind of a dumb thing to say because they can talk to you like that. They just did. They absolutely can. You can't, unless you're going to hold their mouth shut, which I would highly recommend against, um, you really can't control someone at that level. So there, what I'm saying is there's no one right way to do it. The idea is you want your kid to come out of it feeling like they have a better chance of becoming more self-disciplined over time from the, that, that experience. Yes, I love it. You don't want them feeling ashamed, not safe or not loved. That is so helpful. Oh my goodness. So what do we do if we are listening to this and we want to implement everything that you've spoken about, but maybe our partner is not on board or has never been exposed to this way of parenting or they have their own stuff that they're working through? Because I think as parents, it's really important that we are on the same page, that we always show a united front in front of our children and that there's coherence between the way that we parent. So how do we navigate that? I love that you're asking that question. This is probably the most common thing that I see between parents, whether they're married or not. And I love the fact that you use the word team because a lot of times people say I'm on the same page and I'm like, no one's ever on the same page. Can you just try to be in the same chapter or even the same book? And what I love about the, the team analogy is you don't, you and your partner don't have to play the exact same position doing the exact same moves. Like you just want to be on the same team, right? It's actually good for our kids if there are some differences between us, because it actually gives them lots of practice trying to figure out how other minds work. Like my kids knew that I would be more likely to say yes to certain things, or my husband would be more likely to say yes to other things. Like, and they have to kind of think that through and figure out how they, and that's, I know it sounds like manipulation, but it's actually tremendous executive function and prefrontal capacity. So that's good. I think the first thing I would say is what I often see that is highly problematic but very common is that one parent tends to be way more strict and less emotionally responsive, and the other parent tends to be way more permissive and highly emotionally responsive, maybe even doing too much for their kids. But what happens is they start parenting in response to the other one. So for example, parent A is so strict that parent B is going to be more permissive to compensate. And then parent A is like, oh, you're so permissive. I need to become more strict. So then parents over time become further and further away from each other. And they're not even responding to what their child needs in the moment or who their kid is. Some kids, you can look at them with your eyebrows raised and it will change their behavior. Other kids, you can do 600 behavioral interventions and they will keep doing the behavior until they're ready to stop and everything in between. So I think it's really important we're tuned into who our kids are what the moment is about, where they are developmentally, what they're ready to learn, if they're ready to learn in the moment. There's all these things that we need to bring to the moment. What I will say is if you're a parent who is co-parenting with um, someone who doesn't really buy into all the stuff that we're talking about, they're much more command and demand and just do it because I say, and I don't want to get it. I don't want to sit here and talk about your feelings. Just, I told you to do it, do it. One of the most important things we can do 
is give that other parent four S's. We're going to four S the crap out of that other parent as their partner is to when they're come home and they're complaining about their rough day, we are safe harbor. And we're like, oh, it sounds like such a stressful day. What do you need? And you co-regulate and you provide all of those because the more experiences they have feeling that, the more they can even draw, they can draw upon it. It might be so foreign to them to tune into someone else's emotions that it's like a language they cannot speak. They don't know how. So we start doing that relationally with them. The other thing I would say is that we just do what we can control with our own child in those moments. And we show up for our kids with our presence. And the research shows that as long as kids have at least one who does that, they reap all kinds of benefits. We can encourage our partners to go to therapy. We can encourage our partners to listen to podcasts like this, to read books, um, etc. But at the end of the day, everyone is responsible for their own journey. And we just have to be the parent we want to be in doing our own work and try to be the best co-parent we can be as well. And just keep educating ourselves. Talking about your own experiences, like, hey, I wanted to yell at him today. But what I did was this, and it worked really well, and it felt amazing too. And you can kind of share your own stories around those experiences as well. I love that. Great advice. Have you noticed with parents that they parent differently for different children? Is that quite common? Because I have a stepson, like I mentioned, who's 16, and I parent him very differently to the way that I parent my daughter. And I don't know whether it's because it's, I mean, he's older, it's my stepson, you know, maybe it's a step-parent relationship thing, but I'm more on the stricter side with him and my husband's more of the relaxed one. But then I'm not like that with my daughter. It's really interesting. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, there are so many things that, you know, when we get to the truth of something, usually it's pretty complex and layers and we layered and we want to hold the complexity of that. You know, you could say, oh, it's because he's older or it's because, you know, all those things you mentioned, it's probably a collection of lots of things, including what you feel like his temperament is and what you feel like he can handle. And maybe there's an instinct in you. Like one of the things that people don't talk about a lot is there's so much information that comes into our brain, even without our conscious awareness. So for example, well, I could get into all kinds of studies, but let's say you walk past a painting with flowers on it. And then I ask you, I write down on a piece of paper an R with three letter blanks after it. And I say, fill in this word. You're far more likely to write the word rose because you just walked past those flower paintings without you even noticing the flower paintings because that visual input came into your brain and primed your brain. What I'm saying to you is there's probably all kinds of instinct. We could talk about it as instinct, but it really is about lots of information that comes into our nervous systems, our brains, that is also part of how we make decisions without us even being fully aware of the why. There are probably all kinds of instincts that you have around how that is something he needs from you versus your daughter. You know, she's for sure she's little, little. And so she needs a lot more of that warm, fuzzy, you know, um, kind of thing. But it may be with him. You feel like you want to be really predictable and really firm because you feel like you need to establish that for his safety or because you feel like um, or, and, you know, there may be all kinds of things there. So I think our our own instincts play in, I think, around what people need without us even knowing the why. And then temperament plays in, in a huge role. Sometimes gender plays in, whether we want it to or not. You may be stricter with him because he's male. And, and in fact, there's a really interesting study 
that was uh, several studies that were done that showed that extended pacifier use, I go into this in the bottom line for baby, extended pacifier use, like after age two or three, is correlated with boys having less emotional intelligence. And that is not true for girls with extended pacifier use. The theory behind it is no one really knows exactly why yet, because it's a fairly new study in the last 10 to 15 years, is that people give a lot more attention to emotion. They're more animated around sharing emotions with girl babies than they are with boy babies. They use more emotional vocabulary with girls than with boys. So there are lots of ways that we actually parent boys and girls differently without us even being aware of it. So there's lots and lots of factors there, but it's very common for kids to be parented differently for sure around birth order stuff too. You know, I was much more be careful, be careful, be careful with my firstborn than I was with my thirdborn. Um, and that had to do with me feeling more worried and more anxious about things. Whereas with the third, I felt more confident and more relaxed as a parent. So there's so many factors there. Interesting. I know it's so funny because this is obviously my husband's second, but my first. And whenever she hurts herself, like this morning, You can see here, I actually have a bit of blood on my jumper. So this morning she fell over and she must have put her tooth through her upper lip and she was bleeding. She was fine. Like (laughs) she's absolutely fine. But me, oh my goodness, me on the inside, I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, is she okay? I'm literally freaking out. But I'm trying not to project that onto her. And I have the awareness to regulate myself and to just go over to her and hold her and pick her up and kiss her and explain to her what has happened. Oh, that must have really hurt. You fell over. You've got a sore lip now. You know, I kind of talk her through what I saw. And I do those things, but on the inside, I am freaking out. And I know it might be a first time mama thing, but I also watch my husband and he's so calm. And He's just a rock for her and it's so beautiful. I'm like, how is your nervous system not running wild like mine is right now? So there are so many different factors that come into it. And, you know, step parenting is another whole layer and we can still apply everything that you've spoken about to the step parenting relationship. Absolutely. You know what I love about what you talked about there is like you had this internal experience and then what you shared with your daughter was something different. What she saw from you is meaning making. And I thought about that phrase again earlier when you were talking about her her sleep routine and how you created really positive meaning. We have to remember as parents, we are meaning makers for our children. You know, you've probably had the experience with her where she heard a scary noise or whatever, and she looked startled, or maybe she fell and hurt herself, and she looked, you know, like, I'm not sure what to do here. This hurts. And then she looks at your face. Our children look to our faces. And if we look panicked or freaked out, it's terrifying for them. And what we're doing is we're, we're communicating, this is something terrible that's happening. This is really frightening. But if we handle it in a, oh, that hurt. Yeah, that hurt. And we handle it in a way that communicates, you're okay. I'm okay. This kind of thing happens. We're actually creating meaning around that. And, you know, I mean, this is even for adults. There's a really funny kind of like viral video going around right now where this guy just freaks his girlfriend out by totally panicking. She doesn't know what he's panicking about starts screaming and running out of the room and she just screams and runs out of the room like something horrible is happening. 
he's doing it just to mess with her. But that's how we're we're wired as humans is if someone's freaking out, it signals danger for us. If someone's calm, we look at other faces. And when we look calm and all of that, you know, that signals everything's okay. We can handle this. So we're doing that about every aspect of our child's life. We are meaning makers for them. So we want to be really intentional about our own fears and neuroses and anxieties because we really can communicate without meaning to a lot to our children about how they should experience the world. And in that example I shared before, I'm literally freaking out externally and I come to her, I hold her, I'm very calm and I'm very soft. I love that because what you're talking about there is, you know, we have these nervous systems that can dial up and dial down in terms of our states of arousal, right? So when we go into fight, flight, freeze, or or we go into these really like intense emotions or intense physical responses, like I said, every emotion also has a physiological side to it. So our emotions and our physiology are two sides of the same coin. So when you have that emotion of, oh my gosh, is she going to be okay? Your heart is beating faster. Your muscles are tenser. Your body temperature elevates. So we have these physiological responses. What's key is that we learn to recognize that. And we literally like, this is in ourselves, but also in our children. This is one other strategy I use a lot. Like one time I was trying to get JP out of the bathtub. He was probably three or so. And he was like, I'm not getting out of the bathtub. And so I was like trying to, you know, navigate the situation. And I literally in my brain say it again to myself, like, this is when he needs you the most. You are the calm in the storm. And then I imagine he has like a volume dial on his on his belly and his volume dial is turned all the way up. His nervous system arousal is all the way up. And my job is to help slowly turn it down, which means my volume dial for my stage of arousal have to be down too. But then that really helps me to have that kind of visual imaginary piece around that because it helps me with this understanding that my tone of voice and the way I'm moving my body and all of these things that I'm doing with my nonverbal communication really matter a lot in terms of that meaning making and directing the the path of what's going. So after those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, that was so hard on my nervous system. My baby girl was bleeding. Like you're going and you're turning down your nervous system arousal. And then you're going to get a good night's sleep tonight to let yourself totally recuperate. Um, But we can do that with our children too, is to imagine that we're turning down the dial in these reactive states. And when we do that repeatedly, they learn how to do it for themselves. This does not make children spoiled or indulged or dependent. It actually makes them have better ability to regulate and soothe themselves. I love that. Now let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Besides all of your books, let's pretend they're already in the curriculum. What is one book you would choose? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Four high school students to read? Yes, like that 16, 17, 18 year range. There's, can I say two? (laughs) Um, I am obsessed with a book by Jessica Leahy called The Addiction Inoculation. And it's all about substance use and abuse and elevating protective factors and reducing risk factors. I love that book. And it's got tons of great psychoeducation for kids in there um, and for parents about how different substances impact brain development. Really, really good stuff. The other one is Julie Lithcott Hames's book called Your Turn. So Julie Lithcott Hames wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult. And then she wrote one for young adults called Your Turn. That's really all about how to become a grown-up and how to 
Think about money and your identity and relationships. And it is spectacular. And it's full of great stories of youth. And it's super inclusive around all kinds of diversity. It is a lovely book. I buy it for every high school graduate. Oh, that's so amazing. I have not read either of those books, so I will be getting those. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Now let's flip the switch a little bit more onto you. I want to talk about how you set yourself up for a successful day. What's your morning routine? Talk us through a typical day in your life with your routines and your rituals and everything that you do. If it's a weekend day, I will sleep in later and stay in bed and read. And remember, my boys are older and they sleep late. So um, I will sort of have a slower start. And then we, my husband goes and gets breakfast burritos and we sit outside. I live in Southern California. So even year round, it's pretty nice. And um, we have breakfast burritos and just kind of lounge. And then we usually get together with our best friends Saturday night for dinner. Um, So that's one of my favorite days of the week. But a typical weekday, um, I will get up and make my kid breakfast and get him off to school or my husband will take him to school. Um, but I'm always up with him, whether I'm making breakfast or driving him or my husband is, I am in the kitchen with him in the mornings um, to have that little time before he goes off to school. Several days a week, I meet my best friends and we work with a trainer and exercise together with our dogs. We all bring our dogs. So the dogs run around. It's like you know, people do goat yoga. This is like dog cardio slash weightlifting kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, I'm really lucky. I definitely work. I definitely have lots of jobs. Um, and I, I will sit and get through my email um, once or twice a day in chunks. But most days, my best friend and I run errands together. So even if I have to like go do something up at my office, she goes with me. And we like, we plan out days, like we're going to spend a day purging her closets. The next day we'll go to my house and purge closets. So we spend a lot of time together and it is definitely my 4S kind of thing. So a little bit of work, lots of time with my friend, a little bit of exercise. And then at the end of the day, my kid gets out of school about 530 because he plays sports after school. And we always have family dinner. Always, always, always. Even if it has to be fast food, which we try not to do, we're still always going to have dinner together um, 99% of the time. So family dinner, my kid goes off to do homework. I do a little more email and catch up time with my husband. And then my husband and I have typically a show we like to watch. We kind of like have an ongoing series or something. And it's one of my favorite parts of the night is sitting on the couch, a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of sparkling water, my husband and my dog, we watch a show and I'm looking for the cutest boots ever on the internet while I'm watching. It's probably not good to double screen, but it's really a great way for me to feel delight. (laughs) Oh, that sounds so nice chocolate, sparkling water, your husband, your dog, your best friend, you're working out. Well, you know what? I know you got all the good parts. I also deal with chronic migraines and, you know, um, there's a rat in my basement right now. So the exterminator was here and interrupted my meeting with the dog barking. You know, it's all that stuff too. You just got the good, you just got the highlights, the parts I love and that I love to, to do. Mm, that sounds so nice. Oh my gosh. What a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. I loved hearing it. Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Ready. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Sleep. One thing we can do today for our wealth. So more abundance in all areas of our life. Gratitude for micro moments. This is what I would call micro bursts of joy. And for a while I was doing this on Instagram, like 
if you just pay attention to like how beautiful the green in a leaf is or how good the sun feels on your skin or any just any moment that brings you a microburst of just joy or appreciation, to me, that is what abundance stems from. It's abundance in how I see the world. It's a, it's, it gives me this sense of feeling of awe. It spurs a feeling of wanting to be generous because I'm so grateful for just all the beauty around me. So for me, microbursts of joy, moments of little gratitude is everything as it relates to abundance. Mm, beautiful. I love that. What's one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Giving ourselves the four S's, helping ourselves feel safe. And in times when you feel like your nervous system is crackly and feeling frazzled out, like literally ask yourself this question. I wish, I wish so much. And I did this with my children because I wish so much I had grown up knowing to ask myself this question is to ask myself, what is it I need right now? A lot of times I don't even know what I need because I don't think about my needs. I'm always thinking about taking care of everybody else. And I I grew up in a home with a father who was an alcoholic, so I was definitely a pleaser. So really taking that time to say, what is it I need right now, especially when my nervous system's feeling frazzled, is that really important piece of safe. Seeing and understanding myself, noticing that I'm feeling frazzled right now. I wonder what I need, right? That seeing and tuning into the internal world, soothing myself giving myself what I need, um, taking time out and bringing that kind of quality of presence, just pausing and paying attention on purpose, and then continuing to do that in a way where my brain then comes to expect, I'm going to keep showing up for myself and I'm going to reach for people who will show up for me, even though I sometimes feel like, oh, I can handle it, I can handle it. It's so important we reach, we reach for other people. Um, And particularly times we're feeling isolated and alone, or like we're struggling with something on our own, almost always there are people around us feeling that too. So reach for other people. That's another great way to take care of ourselves. So yeah, I think the way we we love more is by bringing those four S's to ourselves and then bringing it in from our other relationships. Our relationship with ourselves and with others is the most important thing we can do for ourselves and for our children. Absolutely. So beautiful. Perfectly said. This has been so amazing. I truly wish that we had another seven days to chat because I have so much that I want to talk to you about, but maybe you'll have to come back on for another conversation. Mm, I would love that so much. This has been so amazing. You are amazing. Thank you for all the work that you do in the world. Everything that you do is helping and serving and supporting so many people. And I'm so grateful. How can I and the listeners give back and serve you today? Oh, thank you so much. What a nice question. I will receive that, that generous offer. Um, I think um, for me, every moment of my time that I spend working has to have impact and be meaningful in some way because it's time away from my family. It's time away from investing in my own relationships. So for me, the most important thing that will make my my work feel important is impact, which means people accessing the work. And that's wonderful if people want to buy the books, but you don't have to spend money if you just go on Instagram or any of my social media where I'm Tina Payne Bryson, P-A-Y-N-E-B-R-Y-S-O-N, um, and just follow my work and um, and soak in anything that might be relevant or helpful to you. That would mean the world to me for people to just access it and to have ripple effects of impact in making our world better. <clears throat> Thank you so much. We'll link to all of your goodness in the show notes so people can go and check out your website, your Instagram, your books, everything that you do. So thank you, my love. 
Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing all the work that you do. You are such a parenting inspiration to me and you make me want to be a better parent. You make me want to be the best mama that I can be. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful for the work that you put out into the world. You are changing my parenting experience. So thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. I feel so inspired to show up even more for myself, for my children and for Nick. And I'm going to apply those four S's to him too and to myself. You know, yes, I can do it to my kids, but I've got to do it to myself and to my husband as well. So I really hope you got a lot out of this conversation. And if you did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed so that you never have to go searching for a new episode. Now, please come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I absolutely love connecting with you and I love hearing from you. So come and share with me your biggest takeaway from this conversation. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.